0: People have long been captivated by stories of dragons. Myths related to dragon slaying can be found across many civilizations around the world, even among the most ancient cultures, including ancient Israel. In his book, The Dragon, the Mountain, and the Nations, Robert Miller chronicles the trajectories and transformations of this myth, and he brings out the major role of dragon slaying in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Join us as we talk with Robert Miller about an age-old fascinating topic Dragons. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Robert D. Miller II earned his Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible from the University of Michigan and is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Catholic University of America and Research Associate with the University of Pretoria, South Africa. His other books include Chieftains of the Highland Clans, A History of Israel in the 12th and 11th Centuries B.C., Oral Tradition in Ancient Israel, and Covenant and Grace in the Old Testament, Assyrian Propaganda and Israelite Faith. Robert teaches courses in Old Testament, the Ancient Near East, and Archaeology. Bob, welcome to the show. Very glad, happy to be here. Your book has a cool title, The Dragon, the Mountain, and the Nations. Tell us what it's about.
1: It is about a Myth or a fragment of a myth that is found in uh, the literature of a number of different cultures of the ancient world, particularly of the ancient Near East, that the authors of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, were aware of, and they were aware that their audiences knew about this. And so what I did is I tried to trace back the origin of this myth, where it was used by different societies in different ways, and then focus in on how it's used in the Bible and what the biblical authors meant by using a myth. Um, I can explain the myth in just like one or two sentences. So you've got two characters. One of them is a god, the storm god. The storm god is usually depicted as a bull, and he's usually connected with the human king of whatever society you're talking about. And then the story is the storm god defeating a dragon, and the dragon stands for chaos and the powers of evil, but it also stands for the sea, the Mediterranean Sea or the Indian Ocean, whatever it was that people were aware of. And when this storm god defeats the sea, that often means creation for these people. I mean, that's not always the case. But in many of these societies, that's the story of how creation took place. And even when it's not creation, it's always about why the human king has the authority to rule people and bring order.
0: Can you give our listeners two or three examples of this mythological stories that appears in different cultures?
1: Yeah, so most of the cultures that I'm looking at are in the Middle East and around, let's say, 1600 to 1400 BC. So this is earlier than the literature of the Bible, even earlier than the earliest uh, material we have before even the time of Moses. And we can trace this myth uh, among a people called the Hurrians that lived in what's now Syria and northern Iraq. And the names change, but the story's the same. So for them, the storm god was named Teshub, and he is a bull, and he defeats the sea, which is this chaos dragon. They seem to have borrowed it from a people called the Hittites, who lived in what's now Turkey maybe 100 years earlier, so back to maybe 1600 BC. For them, the storm god was named Tarhunt, but the story's the same. The storm god has to fight off the power of chaos, which is the sea, or a dragon, in order to bring order for the world. What I found most interesting is that you find the exact same story in very early Hindu myth coming out of India. So in the Rig Vedas, and there we're talking maybe 1550 BC or so, you get the exact same story of a storm god who's represented by the human king and who defeats a dragon that stands for chaos and for the sea in order to bring order to the world. But the the thing is, if we know this myth was known by the Hittites, they happen to be an Indo-European people. That means their language is connected to Latin, Greek, and the languages of India. The Hittites had this myth. The people of early India had this myth, and it's almost identical. In fact, some of the same... Uh, cognate words in the two languages are are the same. This means that both of these peoples already had this myth before their ancestors migrated into those two regions, Turkey and India. That means the myth has to be around at least like 10,000 BC. I mean, we we can push it really, really far back, which I found really, really interesting. So Bob, How did you get interested in this topic? I've been interested in this for a very long time. I actually started work on this almost 20 20 years ago in, in university, trying to understand some passages in the Bible, which I can talk about in a minute, that clearly use this myth. And scholars have known for a very long time that Israel was borrowing this language from their immediate neighbors. What wasn't as clear was that those neighbors were borrowing it from someone before them who was borrowing it from someone before them. And so I over especially the last 10 years, I've been just moving back further and further and further to try to trace how this works. And then also, it's Key for me that each of these societies is using this story in a different way. So there's subtle changes every time, and there's certainly quite a lot of changes when Israel uses this in the Bible.
0: The focus of your book is on how this myth pervades the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Would ancient Israelites have known some form of this mythological story?
1: Yes, and, it, and the question is sort of how clear or how many different versions of this did they know? I, I'm fairly certain they knew at least one version from their neighbors, the Canaanites. That's the people who were in the land of Israel before the Israelites. And we have Canaanite texts, not exactly from that area, but from a little further north, that present this myth. In that case, the storm god is called Baal. And the dragon is called Yam, which just means the sea. And we know from texts from, let's say, the northern part of Lebanon and into Syria, we have it written examples, but we've got visual seals and inscriptions depicting the battle even from the region that became Israel. So we're fairly certain that they knew this myth from their Canaanite friends. Uh, They also encountered it later on when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. So after 586, the Jews are taken to Babylon at the time of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And there they would have encountered another version of this myth called the Enuma Elish, where the god in question is Marduk, and he defeats the dragon who's called Tiamat. But that story was already in connection and in relationship with some of these other myths.
0: So Israel's hit the same story at least twice. What are some examples of the use of this myth in the Old Testament? And are there any unique features of this story within the Old Testament context? When I try to figure out what Israel's doing
1: with this, I I see them doing two things. Uh, One of them, first of all, I think it's clear that these other peoples don't simply think of this as a story, oh, there must have been dragons at one point and our God defeated them. They actually mean something religious by this. When they say Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, defeated chaos, they mean our God is reliable. You can trust him. He's the one who put the world in order. And our king stands for that. So Israel doesn't believe in dragons any more than their neighbors did, and certainly not even, even as much as their neighbors did. When Israel says, God defeated the dragon, they're often they're saying, whatever you Canaanites mean by that, when you say our God defeated the dragon, it's true of our God, not yours. So Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who defeated the dragon, whatever that means. Put order in place. Gives you security and comfort. And so we're going to take the language that's said about Baal or about Marduk. We're going to take Marduk and Baal out. We're going to stick God in. God defeated the dragon. And we can see this a number of places. Uh, Psalm 74 is an example. They often consider this to be way back in antiquity, maybe at the time of creation, just like their neighbors did. So Psalm 74 says God, my salvation, uh, God, my King, from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragon on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And Leviathan, that name, in fact, was used in the Canaanite myth to talk about the dragon. So Israel doesn't think there's really a dragon in the water. But whatever that means, when you use that myth, it's not true about your God. It's our God. You get this not just in the Psalms, it's uh, in the um, book of Isaiah, there's a great example where Uh, they're trying to get God to act now. And you appeal to what he did. Why should God help me? Why can I trust him? Awake, awake, put on strength, arm of the Lord, as in days of past, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the water of the great deep? So what does that mean? It means that God is the one who made the earth what it is, brought order, you can depend on him, you can call upon him to do then again what he did in the past. Sometimes they do a different, they do two other things actually. Sometimes they put that into the future. So they might say, when the last day comes. I really get the impression when Israel thought of evil as personified, they didn't picture a red guy with cloven hooves and a pitchfork. They pictured a dragon. And so uh, they say um, in the future, this is Isaiah again, 27 verse one, on that day, meaning the last day, the Lord with his hard and great and mighty sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What does that mean? It's Cosmic language about God will come to our rescue and put evil in its place. But they actually have a totally other way they use this myth sometimes. 90% of the time, it's what you say is true about your God is really true about our God. The other way they can do it is to say, Your God had to fight this battle against the dragon, you think it's his greatest accomplishment whatever that dragon is for our god it's actually nothing at all so that same leviathan that's mentioned in psalm 74 and psalm or in isaiah 27 at the end of the book of josh of job god says look at leviathan it's this horrible horrible thing that could eat a whole city and i put it on a leash and for me it's kind of a pet and I kind of keep it in a goldfish bowl, and I play with it. And this Psalm 104 does the same thing. It talks about Leviathan, but Leviathan to God, it's just like a guppy. It's nothing. So this is another strategy of dealing with your neighbors and their myths is to say, what your God is so proud of was is a non a non-starter for our God. It's so easy. Uh, the dragons come up even in the creation story in Genesis 1, but there it's this other strategy. The dragons are listed right alongside the largemouth bass as the what's created when God creates the fish of the sea.
0: Would you say that knowing this basic dragon slaying myth helps us understand the Bible better?
1: I mean it does because first of all it's it's a a metaphor by which they're trying to say something and they for them what's what is a monster I mean a monster is something that's unpredictable something that is beyond our thinking especially the sea I mean these the Israelites were never a sea going people so for them the sea was terrifying uh think of the the um, meme that shows a, a kayaker with a blue whale below him that I happened to see this yesterday. This is how they viewed the sea. It's huge and you don't know what's out there. And when it gets kicked up into a storm, it's just chaos. And that's what life is. So where's God in that? God fights against that. In a way it's a, it's Israel trying to deal with the problem of evil. How can a good God who's all powerful, tolerate evil in the world. And rather than say, it's all God's mysterious will somehow, they're, they're more likely to say, God's on your side, and he's fighting, and it's a tough fight. We know he'll win, but he's got your back. And so they're kind of compromising a little bit on God's all powerfulness rather than compromising on him being all good and saying he's a warrior on your side. And it's, it's, it's not encouraging you to violence. I mean, this is, people have been kind of critical sometimes of this myth, people who know it's there in the Bible. Oh, that doesn't this just encourage violence as a solution to your problems? But it's always God acting on your behalf. And Israel appeals to this precisely at a time when they have no power in the face of their human enemies.
0: Now, what about the New Testament? Do the New Testament writers employ dragon slaying? Uh, would the broader Greco-Roman culture have been familiar with some version of this myth?
1: Yeah, they. in fact, they would have actually encountered, encountered the myth once again in another variant, because you had a, a Greek version of this, um, uh, more than one Greek version of this, in fact, but specifically the one with Zeus fighting against Typhon. And the Greeks got that from being Indo-European and getting it from their Indo-European ancestors. So the Israelites have encountered it yet once again. And sometimes it's hard to tell what they're responding to. Even in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, they seem to be responding to the, the Canaanite version, the Mesopotamian version, and the Greek version all at once. In the New Testament, you get it a couple of different ways. You get it in the book of Revelation that's full of visual imagery. The dragon shows up there in chapter 12. There's an image of a woman close with the sun, about to get birth and a dragon that's there ready to take her child. And the, the woman stands for the the church, really, or the Old Testament people of God. And what the giving birth and the child all means is is a kind of separate question. But what's interesting to me is there's the dragon again. The dragon, in fact, is given the exact same number of heads as he has in the Canaanite myth. So they've, they've cut and pasted him completely. And the author there says, this dragon is the same serpent as in the Garden of Eden. So really, he's saying what I said when I said the, the devil for them is not a red guy with a pitchfork. It's, it's a dragon, when when they, de- I think even the Garden of Eden, it's not a snake until the end of the story when it crawls on the ground. A snake that's not on the ground is a dragon to me. So that's what John in the book of Revelation is doing again. He's saying that old serpent, that old force of evil is still with us. But I also think this is there in places you might not expect it, like Jesus walking on the water or stilling the sea. It's not an accident that, he walks on, treads on, tramples on the sea. And yes, the Sea of Galilee is not very big, but it can kick up a pretty mighty storm. And uh, the people, the disciples certainly thought they were at death's door. And the way the evangelists talk about that story, Jesus rebukes the sea the same way he rebukes all the other demons. And when he stills the sea, I mean, the disciples have already seen him multiply loaves and fishes, heal people, all sorts of things. It's when they see him still the sea that they're just terrified. What we've got, the storm God is in our boat. The, the God who defeats the chaos monster is right here, and he's been walking around with us for the last several years.
0: Bob, even as you've just mentioned, your book has a helpful study of the serpent in Genesis 3, and then in a later chapter examines the dragon identified as Satan in the book of Revelation. So the dragon idea is found in Genesis and in Revelation, the beginning and end of the Bible, and of course in some places in between. Would you say then that the dragon-slaying myth serves as a meta narrative in the Bible? I think it does, because if you
1: really unpack a lot of the other details of this of this myth. Every place this myth is used, you've got other gods all cower in fear. There's one God who's going to come to the rescue. That one God is always defeated the first time. Whether it's in the Indian myth or the myth coming out of Turkey, the Canaanite myth, the storm God loses the first time. And if you think about the biblical story, no matter how you slice it up, From the Jewish perspective, if we just stick with the Old Testament, round one, the serpent is pretty much one at the end of Genesis 3. I mean, yes, God says to the serpent, the offspring of this woman will crush your head eventually, but for now, round one, the serpent is one. The same thing in the New Testament, the if Jesus is being depicted in my language as the dragon slayer, he's kind of down for the count on Good Friday. And it looks pretty bad. And so, but to me, this is this is part and parcel of the story. I mean, I'm not saying that, oh, everything is just rehashed other stories. It's a way to make sense out of something. And I, what strikes me is that they've chosen to choose a myth that seems to be really, really old in the human family, something that has been circulated by our ancestors going back to 10,000 B.C. And it forms this kind of substructure then to the whole narrative. The god who fights against evil is initially defeated and then has the final victory. And a lot of this language comes back in, even in uh, St. Paul in Romans says, Um, God has trampled sin and death under your feet. In another place, he says he will trample death uh, and defeat it. But the, the idea there still is this idea, sin, death, and the devil or evil needing to be trampled, already destroyed, but also not yet completely destroyed. There's also always an element of trickery. So the, the storm god never plays fair. There's always somehow that the, the dragon is, is tricked. And um, you could certainly see ways that that works into the, the New Testament as well. The whole idea of the, the uh, death and resurrection seems kind of like a massive uh, undercover uh, operation.
0: I grew up with the Disney film Sleeping Beauty, where the prince slays the dragon to rescue a princess. That story of course was based on older European folktales but would you see stories like this or even other movies like Predator and Aliens are these modern examples of the dragon slaying myth
1: Yeah there's actually a whole field of scholarship called monster study or monsterology there are people there's journals devoted to this that I ended up interacting with where and part of it has to do with psychology so monsters they're always depicted as kind of hybrids that are natural but they don't exist in nature i got uh, feedback when i gave a talk on this last august someone said don't call them dragons because people just picture disney and so forth and i said have you looked at the inscriptions and the seals because they look just like our dragons i mean there's no question you can't call them anything else they look more like western dragons you know even like smog in in the hobbit than they do even the chinese dragons the ancient perception was exactly what you're seeing in The Hobbit. And we've latched onto these, I think, for psychological reasons. It's something that could exist because I know what a lizard is and what if it was just much bigger and what if it had wings and what if it had seven heads. I, so it's something imaginable and yet it's not in nature, it's outside. And so it's kind of like taking the ocean and then giving it a concrete form. That's certainly why it comes back up again and again in the dragon uh, myths. I mean, the only, we obviously in our modern world have put the twists on it with the, you know, how to train your dragon and uh, the, the nice dragon, but the nice dragon is the modern invention to the, the, the standard myth, and we're going to keep coming back to it even if we claim to have moved to something else. We're going to keep coming back to smog. We're going to keep coming back to Godzilla because it's so deep in our psyche.
0: In terms of other projects, Bob, can you tell us what you're working on? Is there any more dragon slaying in your future?
1: Well, there's two other things. One of them is started as an appendix to this book and then became its own book, and that is the uh, the story of St. George. So you have this myth of St. George killing a dragon. And uh, a scholar, a friend of mine in the UK, had written an article several years ago saying, I wonder if this is just the myth of, of Baal. And so I wanted to explore this. And what I found is that uh, not only is it the same myth, but in the Middle East, almost every shrine of St. George sits on top of a place people used to worship, the storm god Baal. So there's a, there's a they've directly taken, without even passing through the Bible, they've jumped straight from the ancient Canaanite storm god to this veneration of a, what do we mean, a saint who killed a dragon? I mean, what is that? Well, there's a book coming out on this. And then the other thing, which is something I'm working on now that's nowhere near completion, I realized working through all of this that this tells me a lot about where Israel gets its conceptual framework to talk about God. So they're they're clearly presenting their own unique theology, but they're using language and metaphors and images that they their people around them knew. And I can account for a lot of it this way. But I kept thinking there's some... There's some nagging something else. And the way I conceptualize it is that all of this tradition, this dragon stuff is north of Israel. It comes out of all the societies to the north of Israel. And I knew there was some Southern element as well, a God of the desert that was not the storm God that was not fighting against the sea. That was some desert image God. And the Bible alludes to this as well by having Moses goes out into the desert and he finds a guy who worships God and he marries his daughter. How can there be a guy worshiping God who's not an Israelite? and He lives off in the middle of the desert. And what I've found is I think that Israel did, in fact, know there were people in northwest Arabia who knew about God even before the time of Moses and um, have brought in maybe even the divine name Yahweh from northwest arabia so that's what i'm working on now
0: robert hearing about your book has been intriguing helpful and fun thank you for taking the time to be with us today thank you all right friends you've been listening to robert miller talk about his recent book the dragon the mountain and the nations you'll find a link to it on our website thank you for listening to new books and biblical studies a podcast channel of the new books network until next time goodbye